Hello and welcome in to another episode of the Esports Network podcast in partnership with Reuters. As always, I'm your host, Mitch Reams. And if you're working for a company looking to expand its reach in esports, Esports Network has opportunities across digital media, podcasting, and video programs. Please reach out to Esports Network CEO Mark Timmick using the email in the bio of this show. So first up, I have to apologize. I'm feeling a bit under the weather, but don't worry. I don't have COVID symptoms. So if I seem like I'm lacking a bit of energy, that would probably be why. Still, I've been looking forward to this interview for a few weeks now, so I had to do it. Because today we're talking to Marshall Zaloznik. And Marshall, I forgot to get your last name's pronunciation uh, before the show. That was, I'm blaming the sickness for that one. How do I pronounce your last name? You did not murder it. It wasn't perfect, but it was very good. It was. It, I've heard worse. So it's Zelaznik. Um, Zelaznik. The Zs intimidate people, but don't do <laughs> The double Z is, is a tough one. It's a tough one. Yeah. Marshall Zelaznik. Uh, he spent most of his career working for the UFC, starting there in 2006 and working his way up to chief content officer by 2016. After that, he spent two years at Activision Blizzard as the global head of business development and content, another two years as CEO of Glory Kickboxing, and just recently, he's moved on to Esports Engine as the company's new CEO. Marshall, I already welcomed you to the show when I mispronounced your name, but welcome to the show again. Thank you. Yeah, great to be with you. Uh, for people unfamiliar, and I'm sure most of our audience is familiar, Esports Engine is a company founded by longtime esports pioneer Adam Apicella. Adam will be moving over to a role as president and chief experience officer of the company. After Esports Engine was founded, it was bought up by Vindex, the new company from MLG founders Mike Sepso and Sundance Di Giovanni. Last month, you heard from Sepso about Vindex, and on this show, we're going to talk about Marshall's new role with Esports Engine, the role he envisions the company playing in the esports world, and tapping on his experience in combat sports, especially when it comes to building storylines and monetizing broadcasts, two things esports definitely needs. But first, Marshall, what made you want to join Esports Engine after your long career? What brought you uh, to this new company? Um, you know, as you mentioned, I, I've had an interesting um, experience. I used to actually be a practicing lawyer, and then I made a career change and got into media, and ultimately with the UFC, where I spent uh, the majority of my call it sports and entertainment career. Uh, and one of the things that having that experience at the UFC is what really sort of gives you the shot in the arm every day to get out of bed and be excited about the work is the reaction that the community has to what you're doing. And in the early days of the UFC, you had this fan base that couldn't get enough, um, whether it was of the fighters or of the fights themselves. Um, and so that's something that doesn't ever leave your system. And when, and when, after the UFC was sold and I went into Activision Blizzard, uh, and was part of the team that was helping to launch the Overwatch League and, um, incubating Call of Duty League and working with all of the other Blizzard and Activision esports, all of those, uh, feelings around this, uh, very engaged community um, came back to life. And by the time I left the UFC, it had been over 10 years. It was, it was maturing, although it was always a challenger sport during my time there and, and continue to probably be looked at that way. But it's, you know, in terms of audience, it's hard to argue that it's not one of the leaders. Uh, but nevertheless, there was this audience in this um, community around gaming and esports, And my learning curve was so steep in that moment that it was really energizing to be back in a, um, in an area of business where you felt that. And when I was uh, recruited away from Activision Blizzard to go back into the fight game with Glory, 
Um, I, again, was motivated by this community that was around what was stand-up combat or kickboxing. Um, and so to get directly to your question, when I had the opportunity to join up with people that I knew and respected and liked, people like Adam you mentioned and Sundance and Mike, all of the, the people that I met while I was at Activision, uh, you get to a point in your career where um, the who becomes just as important as the what. And I knew I liked the what, meaning I liked the space, I liked gaming, I liked esports, and I got to work with people that I really respected and cared about and had a very intense relationship from my time at Activision Blizzard until coming back now to Bindex family with Esports Engine. And I was, one, driven by those relationships, so that the who, and then the what, you, could, you can sense that I've always kept my finger on the pulse a bit of what was happening in the business in and around gaming and esports. And you could feel this energy and this um, pressure to continue to grow. And I frankly, selfishly, I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to get back into it. I wanted to do it in a way that I thought could bring value. Um, and I think what we're doing at Esports Engine, what Vindex is doing globally, is trying to find a way to um, enter this ecosystem to bring value to not only any of our partners, but to the community. And, and that bleeds through everyone within Esports Engine and Vindex. There is a passion and love for the community that you just can't create. So you, for me, I get the who and the what, and that's what drove me back here, frankly. And um, it's been great. I joined, I think, officially with Vindex in around May, um, was part of you know, the planning and discussion around some of the business, was working with Adam and the, and the group um, in Burbank here. And ultimately, as you know, we announced just recently, you know, my appointment as CEO and working with the team in that regard. Fantastic. Really interesting history. And for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the UFC, this is really one of the huge success stories in the sports world over the last two decades. It, you know, this combat sports were dominated by boxing for most of history. Ali, Tyson, uh, take your pick. Boxing was larger than life. And over the last two decades, UFC has been slowly, slowly cutting into that market share to, I believe just recently, passing boxing in terms of viewers. Uh, Marshall, you might be able to back me up on that stat. Is that is that true? Did UFC finally pass boxing when it comes to, I'm sure there's different metrics you could take, uh, but has it has it finally gone on par with boxing? Oh, for sure. You know, I remember the old, um, um, I would do interviews when I opened our office in London and I was doing interviews and the boxing community in the UK is very strong and there was always this resistance to MMA and UFC. And there was always this mantra we had that, um, you know, our, our president, Dana White, would say things like, we're going to be bigger than any of the biggest sports in the world. That was our aspiration. So to the European community, that meant, what do you mean? You're going to be bigger than uh, soccer or football? <laughs> and and it, inevitably, it always boiled down to, well, are you going to be bigger than boxing or are you going to be bigger than boxing? The reality is that um, on any given day, an MMA event like a big UFC event can drive more viewers than the biggest boxing event. Um, but I've never looked at it when I was there as a competition between MMA or UFC and boxing. They were like basically brothers or sisters in a family. They could coalesce. Um, but I don't think there's any denying that MMA and UFC has met and in many cases eclipsed the boxing um, fan base on a particular night. But if you look around the world, there are so many more boxing events going on than there are MMA events that, as to your point, if you try to aggregate stats, somebody could 
play with those stats and say, oh, there are still more boxing fans. But I'm not sure. I think on a global awareness and willingness to purchase and watch, um, the biggest MMA event is on par, if not bigger than some of the biggest boxing events. It's certainly borne out through my anecdotal experience. Uh, it's the only event that you'll find uh, my friend group getting together and paying pay-per-view, which kind of takes me to uh, something I want to ask you about. Uh, but before I, before I ask you about that, as we're talking about UFC's growth, I'm curious, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint any one or two specific things that help create that growth. But as you were there for 10 years, what were some of the things that UFC did so well and MMA in general uh, has done that has allowed it to grow so much to, to where it's now on par with the biggest events like boxing is? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's uh, sometimes when you see massive success and you look back, you know, somebody will say to you, oh, it's because we did X, Y, and Z, and that's why we were so big. Um, I'm not sure, and I'm, you'll find this about me, I'm going to give it to you straight. We had a plan that we were executing against, and we had a lot to overcome in those early days of the UFC. You know, in the early days, people perceived the sport as being barbaric. You know, um, John McCain once called it human cockfighting, and it was really, you know, not on the radar of anything other than a spectacle. And so we spent, in my years there, we spent a lot of time educating really traditional media um, and a more traditional fan base in terms of to get them to understand what we were, which it was regulated, it was safe, these were real athletes that participated. Uh, but one of the, the, the anchors to the real growth of the UFC was the development of the Ultimate Fighter, which was the reality show that, um, that really perpetuated or, or catapulted, I should say, the UFC. And that reality show allowed the fighters to be known, it allowed everyone to understand that this was real sport, that it wasn't just spectacle. But the way I believe we were successful in terms of growing a global sport is that as we opened offices around the world, and I was lucky enough to be part of that group that helped to do that, opening the first office in London and then opening an office in Canada and then opening an office in Asia and then putting an office into Brazil and, and you know, um, embarking on our event expansion throughout the world is we really got local in those local markets. We really found a way, whether it was through attracting talent, fighters from those markets, or whether it was activating those markets through media relationships. And then what it all comes down to, the same reason why people will watch curling in the Olympics, is we told amazing stories about athletes. And we had very creative people that could create compelling content that made you care about a fighter that you didn't know. And to my um, Olympic analogy, it's the same thing. When you hear the story, you know, somebody coming from the hard streets of something who had to overcome this and, you know, the loss of that, all of a sudden we can relate to them and we want to know and we want to watch them succeed until we want to watch them fail. It's like something in our nature. When they get too big, we want to see them lose. Um, but nevertheless, we found a way to get people to care. Um, and it was the right time, whether it was reality TV in its early stages that we were able to take advantage of or our focus on being really local in the way we executed our business, um, I think was instrumental in helping to take us out of the view of being a U.S. property and being a global property. And it was really something we were focused on educating, being global. We wanted people to think of us like tennis or F1 racing as opposed to 
American football or baseball. I think by most metrics, you have accomplished those goals. And uh, our audience, you, you know, I was nodding when uh, he was talking about building storylines, because that's something that I have repeated ad nauseum on this podcast about what esports needs uh, to help create its growth. And there's quite a few parallels uh, in that answer to sort of where esports is right now and where it can go. Uh, educating traditional media, for one, is another thing that esports is working on right now. And just sort of, hey, this is why this is important. This is, here's these negative stereotypes or connotations involved with it. Here's why they aren't accurate. There's all these steps have to go through to create growth here. And I think we've already talked about it, but uh, I'm curious, especially from the building storylines perspective, how can esports do a better job of that? And how can esports engine in particular? Uh, use the company's role at the center of esports to help build those storylines as well? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's worth highlighting a little bit. When I was being recruited from the UFC to go to Activision, I remember the chief strategy officer um, who I had a, a, a relationship with previously, and, and we were speaking, and he said, you know, there are so many similarities with what the UFC had to overcome to where, um, to where esports is. And, and those similarities are, as I mentioned, in one case in the UFC, Everyone thought these were just barroom brawlers. They weren't skilled fighters. And in esports, everyone believes these are gamers who are sitting in someone's basement with mushrooms growing under their feet, and they're not really <laughs> dedicated, committed people. And so, and neither one of those things are true. But how do you convince people that they're not true? And it, and it is through storytelling. The other thing that was similar is, as I mentioned at the outset, there's this really impassioned community and fan base that become the proselytizers for you and the initiative. And you've got to stay true to that fan base to grow and sort of create that network effect. And that's a very similar thing, um, because if you're a gamer and you want to get better or be entertained, a great way to get that entertainment or education is by watching esports. Um, so you've got those people. But how do you expand it to the question that you ask? And I do believe it's driven through personal stories. And those stories uh, are generated through creative people. Um, they, everybody's got a compelling story. This is what we always believe, that um, in, the, in the old UFC, you would hear Dana White say, these are the fighters. We have to promote them. We're the promoters. We need to make people care about them. Everybody, even if you think they're boring or they don't speak English or whatever it is, it's our job to find a way to make them interesting. I think that um, sort of myopia in terms of what our objective is, and I think publishers think about this, I think platforms think about this, and it's just how do you execute on those stories? Because everyone will tell you, oh, it's storytelling. Oh, we have to you know, make the um, players more relatable and make people care about them. But the, the magic in doing that is getting really creative people who know the right questions to ask, who know what's happening within culture to try to drive connectivity. So, you know, my son's a sneakerhead, you know, sneakerheads are a thing. Everyone's interested in this. Um, and you might find the most boring athlete who all of a sudden has a, has a sneaker collection that you can find a way to expand that. And I think what makes us unique at Esports Engine is one, we have real passion from top to bottom within the company of people who live and breathe gaming. Uh, they live and breathe not only the game and the, and the strategy and the competition related to the play, but also they understand what the community is interested in, what they like. So with that, applying that to then bringing in really creative people who have that same passion and giving them the freedom to, to dream and create. Uh, and 
ultimately the, then the next step is to execute on the vision is really what eSports Engine has. We've got the creative minds, we've got the passion talent that understands the community, and we've got the resources in terms of uh, how to get the story and the message over the line. And in our space, we are really, you know, an extra set of um, fingers or hands, you know, to help the publishers and the platforms and whoever wants to create content, we help them achieve their goals. That's our job. We don't win unless they win. And when they come to us with an idea and if they want to drive more interest in their game um, in terms of engagement, you know, activating their current fan base, when they want to expand their fan base and use any of the content we create to grow their fan base, we have the kind of resources and creative people that can sit down and work with them and help them to see the world in a way where they can invest in these stories. Um, it's always uh, a bit of a, a pick and choice that, that, that anyone who's got a budget has to deal with because there are certain things that will eat into budget in terms of producing any content and where you focus that money is really driven by your goals and objectives if you are the group out looking for the service. And what we try to do is we try to be consultants first. We try to help them understand what understand what their objectives are and how we could utilize our services to help them achieve that. But ultimately, the way you create great stories is you have a great creative concept and you have great creative technical producers who can go and shoot the content, edit the content, create the graphics, tell the story, and then help create the promotional links that get people to engage in it. And it is something that... Uh, requires dedication. It requires passion because uh, some you're going to miss and some you're going to hit. Uh, and the idea is to hit more than you miss. And I think in working with Esports Engine and anyone at the Vindex team, when you think of Sundance's experience or, or Sepso's passion for the business, you're going to have access to you know what we call killers in the industry who understand it, who get the objective and can help our partners figure out how to achieve their goals. So um, and I do think it's what makes us unique. I was going to say, I don't think esports has any figure that could be likened to a Dana White, but I think the closest that we do have is probably that MLG trio of Sepso, uh, Sundance, and Adam Apicella, just for their history in the space, the work they did to bring esports into what it is today. You know, they just created the. Uh, inroads and have been in this space for longer than anybody else in the Western world, really. And so, if uh, you know, when there's guiders to, towards esports, I think everyone looks at those three, especially, and the people they're building out at Vindex is like, okay, those are people who get this space, uh, are pushing it forward, are very passionate about it, and care about it. Uh, on that same vein of pushing this space forward, in addition to building storylines, which I think is one huge thing, the other big uh, sort of missing piece of the pie in esports, if you will, is monetizing broadcasts. And this isn't uh, new information to anybody. When every esports broadcast is free to watch on Twitch or YouTube, it takes out that huge media rights deal. And now YouTube's still buying media rights deals, but we're talking uh, peanuts compared to what traditional sports go for in the media rights world. And in the combat sports world, both UFC and boxing have had success with the pay-per-view model, which gets people to pay quite a bit of money for one night of content. It's sort of the opposite of where esports is because people are willing to pay quite 
a hefty amount of money to watch one slate of uh, of fights at night. And I'm curious, what roadblocks are preventing esports competitions from not just doing pay-per-view, but really any paywall at all on broadcast? Because I personally feel like that probably needs to change in the future. Um, so what roadblocks are there? And do you think that needs to change for esports to be successful long-term? Uh, it's a really good question. It's fundamental. And, and going back to the Activision, um, my time at Activision, um, there was a change of focus within Activision Blizzard uh, in terms of what esports was meant to be. Uh, meaning, uh, as I entered the industry, and I was keeping an eye on esports because I was in the sports media world, it was very hard for me because I wasn't an avid gamer of playing any game where I had to watch. I had a son who was big into FIFA, big into COD. And I would play and I'd see and I'd see him watching the videos and I'd see him watching um, to get better and to be entertained or what have you. But when I first entered the space, it looked very, I don't know, lack of a better expression, messy. It was really hard to understand what was the value or the, the high quality events versus a community event, let's say. And I think your question, the, the question or the I think the premise which underlies your question uh, goes to the motivation of the group that's putting on the eSport or putting on the content. And when I first got into the space, it was all all of the business, all of the budget sat within the marketing group within the publishers. So the, the marketing group had an eSports budget. And if the money sits in the marketing group, that's a cost center in a company, not necessarily motivated to make money. It's really created, and, and this was the Blizzard passion, which I loved and really was attracted to, they were creating esports for the sake of entertaining and engaging their audience and to grow their audience so more people played, they played longer, and maybe they spent more money, right? And so that was a cost item. And if they made any money on sponsorship, it was ancillary. What, what changed and what philosophically is changing in some way is there is now a movement when you think about the franchise leagues and the leagues and you see the um, attempt to monetize um, even League of Legends and that that old BAM deal where they the rumors were about how much they were getting paid, there was all of a sudden this move to say, okay, yeah, marketing is good, but why can't we make this a revenue-driving business and a business we invest in that's expected to return revenue on our investment? And the philosophy within Activision Blizzard became, this, this is a valuable product. Let's create a league and let's monetize it. So I was part of the team that did the first Twitch deal around Overwatch League and, and part of the Blizzard esports. And I was, you know, front and center walking through Disney, TNT, um, YouTube, Twitch, um, uh, whoever else was out there. I can't remember them all. Literally going around with hat in hand, pitching the, the idea. And there was a resistance among the traditional pay broadcasters who have historically, and I think even today, write the biggest checks for sports media rights. Their hang up always was, well, we're not gonna pay high media rights if this stuff is free online. There's no exclusivity because what will drive value is exclusivity. The rub is the moment you start creating exclusivity, the publisher who might have a double barrel view, which is how do we engage the community and how we generate revenue, they have to choose. Because if they want the revenue, then they're going to go for exclusivity, and then they might ostracize the community. And in that decision matrix, um, 
you'll find, in, in my experience, and albeit it's one experience at Activision Blizzard, the, the people responsible for marketing, creating the game, engaging an audience, they want the product everywhere. They want everyone to experience so they can keep their game growing and keep it healthy and engage and embrace the community and give the community what they want. And then the business guys, and this is where my head was because I was responsible for driving the revenue for UFC and in media are thinking, well, hang on, I've got this responsibility to generate revenue. And if I let it be everywhere, I can't sell it. And so to get back, I think the, the point becomes revenue is important if you're premise or focus is on how do we create revenue. And I think there is still some tension in the publisher world and maybe even in the platform world, whoever's investing in esports and gaming content like this, are they doing it to engage an audience, meaning they want it a huge funnel, or are they trying to drive revenue? And once you align on that, that will help drive some of your decision making. And the reason that we like our position here at Esports Engine and Vindex is no matter what way you want to go as a publisher or anyone that wants to enter this space and content, you've got experience in someone like me and in Mike and others in the business who understand distribution. And we don't charge you for that advice. You know, we had, an, we had a, a meeting, a kickoff meeting early in my time here with one of the biggest publishers. And I remember asking the team, what's your motivation? You want to make money? You want, what? I was trying to help give them uh, distribution advice. And that's not something we charge for. This is just sort of what we're able to bring with our experience. But I understand the point of your question because there's a belief, and I don't think it's unfounded, that if esports can't generate revenue, it will go the way of the dinosaur. I'm not sure I believe that yet, but I do think there is a way through content, through smart distribution, through multifaceted distribution in terms of segmenting your content um, in terms of you know how you use short and long form content, where all that content lives, we can provide that um, input so that our platforms, whether or our partner friends, if they want to engage a wide audience or they're looking to monetize, we can help create content and build a system that helps them to achieve those goals. But um, I've always, I've, I remember being in one of my first esport um, um, uh, business to business events and I remember Mike Sepso being on the stage as one of the Deus speakers. And everyone kept saying, well, how are you going to make money? How are you going to make money? And what I just said to you is sort of what I've learned over time, that it really comes down to what the goal is of the group that's investing in it. Uh, now, that's the publishers. I'm sorry to go so long, but it's something I feel passionately about. Is So you have the publisher perspective, but then you have the players themselves, the teams, the individual athletes. What, how do they, um, how, how does it make sense for them to invest their time into this passion of theirs and at the, at the risk of any other attempt to try to you know, earn a living? And so what we try to do is through creative designs around tournaments and creative designs around content, always keep in mind that we can bring value to the teams and the players so they can monetize so that if they have a stream separate and apart from their play and they're influencing um, and they're creating revenue on Twitch or any of these other platforms. When they work within our ecosystem, we know we're successful when we've helped elevate those players and those teams so that they can go ahead and achieve their business goals on the back end, even if it's not directly related with what the work is we might be doing with a publisher. There's a lot there. I hope you can unpack some of it, but I can go all day talking about this. That was a really interesting answer. I got quite a bit out of that. And just the 
the dichotomy between the marketing arm and the business arm and just sort of where does this sit and who drives this. Uh, I'm glad you brought up teens because that's what I was thinking the whole time is it's like, okay, yeah, the publishers, uh, if people are just playing the game, that's great. They'll make up that revenue on the back end. The teens themselves, you know, if you look at, if you take the traditional sports lens of things, uh, half of an NBA team's revenue comes from a giant media rights deal at the beginning of the year. Uh, and so it doesn't really work in the same way. And I think that's where a lot of esports fans want esports to be, where these teams are as big, these kind of institutions, these fandom institutions. And as I talked with uh, Jason Lake and Andy Miller, uh, Complexity and NRG respectively, back in spring, they both said, I was talking about our esports fans, well, sort of on this exact point, uh, do they need to eventually pay for broadcast? And they were like, no, it's not on esports fans, but our relationship with the publishers needs to evolve. That was sort of what the, they absolutely agreed upon. It's like, okay, this something needs to change here if esports organizations are going to be long-term sustainable. Uh, and I'm curious where that goes. It's a really tough balance as you have okay these orgs are bringing in people to watch these games you know i i the call of duty league is going to get a bump this year because 100 thieves is in it and shouldn't they shot see some of that added revenue and i'm sure he will through merch and all the different ways that Nate shot leverages that brand uh, but it's an interesting little balance of power thing that we've got going on at esports as you look towards the future, how do you see that evolving over the next five years or so? Are we going to see this continue to be just sort of a give and take situation? Or do you think marketing or business is going to eventually uh, win out in the end? Uh, the parallels with the fight game are so great, right? In this question is, um, so what's more important, the UFC or Conor McGregor? <laughs> great point. Right. And so everybody's dealt with what's more important, Don King or Mike Tyson? Um and there's a symbiotic, <laughs> and there's a great symbiotic relationship that exists between fighter promoter, and I think between player team and publisher, um, and the and and my belief, and I'm kind of thinking out loud right now about it, is that in the early stages you're going to have, and this is again very typical in the fight game, it's going to be the publisher will take the perspective. Without us, they don't exist. The and that's if they were being truly honest. They would never admit it, but that there's part of that. Like, but over time, and this is what I sense at Activision Blizzard is they see the importance of the community, and the community is made up of the watchers, the casual players, the amateurs, the pros, and the teams. As that community continues continues to develop and become segmented, and the power starts to be sit, the power starts to sit with the different groups. I really believe that going forward, the teams and the, um, the high-profile players are going to be able to drive a real discussion with the publishers, with the IP owner, about how they can be helpful and how this symbiotic relationship becomes, I don't want to characterize it as fair or unfair, but I'm going to and say more fair. Um, but, I, but I think it comes with Unfortunately, it's just a business term. It's not a sexy term and it's not great in this context, but where does the leverage sit? And when you're a hundred thieves and you start engaging a community and you start building a brand and you start looking like the Conor McGregor of MMA, guess what? You're going to have a little bit more influence when you go to the publisher who is looking to engage an audience, who's looking to be authentic, who's looking for 
ways to expand their audience base. So the teams like the 100 Thieves of the World um, are going to find themselves at a negotiating table and trying to bring value because every deal brings value to both parties. Um, but that comes with more stature in my mind. And again, just thinking out loud, whether you're an influencer streamer or whether you're a pro that's um, also playing outside of the pro circuit and driving an audience, uh, these individuals will have more leverage going forward. Uh, now, does that happen organically? Like in most places, probably. Could that happen in a more uh, meaningful way, in a more collaborative way, where the teams that the teams and or players that are creating more stature are walking in the door to sit down with the executive teams at Blizzard um, um, or EA or whomever and saying, hey, what are you trying to accomplish? Here's what we're trying to accomplish. How do we work together? How do we become, again, symbiotic? Um, but that power struggle exists, whether it's you know the players union in football, whether it's in basketball and the ownership, uh, this is going to be a struggle that as uh, more and more um, eyes are put on individual players and teams is going to be something that every publisher, every IP owner is going to confront. And every team is going to have to be very creative about how they get to the table to make sure they're getting their fair share. Um, and it becomes a negotiating negotiation for sure, all driven through leverage. Absolutely. It's a good reminder that every traditional sports uh, institution has had to deal with this so long. And esports being in this digital age is still so young uh, that it's going to have plenty of these different fights over the years. It's not really something that ever goes away, as you mentioned with the players union. So that's not even something we see that widespread in esports. I know there's a CSGO players union and, and a few others here and there, but it's not quite to the levels of like strikes and, and negotiations uh, like we see in traditional sports. So Marshall, I got to let you go here in a little bit. Uh, but for everybody who comes from sports to esports or has experienced in both worlds, I always ask him this one question. And that's what is one thing that esports can learn from sports? In this case, the UFC or combat sports at large. And then vice versa. What is something that esports does well that you think the sports world could better utilize? Uh, starting with what can esports learn from combat sports? Yeah, I, th I think the thing is, is um, I would. You never want to lose your edge. You never want to get complacent. Esports right now engages a very big audience. I mean, it's it's huge, and it it would be an insult to even call it a challenger sport in some way, because in terms of the mass audience that it has. But I think whether you're a publisher, a player, a team, etc., and and you and you've made you're trying to make a business in this. You have always got to keep your edge like you're in second place. And that's one thing we learned, and it was something Dana drilled into us. We were never complacent. We always, there was always someone else to beat. Boxing, stick and ball sports, soccer. We wanted to grab the world's attention. Like, you know, I'm an older guy. And when, when Mike Tyson fought uh, Lennox Lewis, the world stopped to watch. Or when, when Muhammad Ali fought Joe Frazier, the world stopped to watch. That was our aspiration always. And I think what esports can learn is uh, even in a world where it feels somewhat fragmented, every individual operating in the space should keep that edge to keep driving harder. Don't get complacent. Today, it's not good enough. It's never good enough. Um, and I think 
I was lucky to work in an organization with very, um, with a visionary, with a couple of visionaries who never lost that edge, which always looked, always had a chip on our shoulder about being best. And then the, on the other side, and I think there's already been some learning. What I was fascinated when I first got into esports was the capabilities of the production and operational side of this, what they were able to do with hundreds of streams coming in, whether they were audio, whether they were video streams, gameplay, the ability to bring in graphics, APIs with statistics that were being driven through game engines, that the esports production groups, and maybe this is a, a bit of a, um, a pitch around esports engine, is what groups like ours have done, especially with this sort of history, it, um, in terms of bringing in all of the technical side of a production, I believe, and it's already happening, that traditional sports can learn from that. So whether you think of the fan wall um, during the NBA bubble or what WWE is doing with their fan stadium and things like this, esports has been doing this forever. And I think that if you take a look at what's truly happening in terms of how esports is executing its business on a production level, I think traditional sports can learn a lot from it, whether it's efficiencies, whether it's technical capabilities, whether it's innovation. I think a lot of that is happening on esports that if you're not paying attention on traditional sports, you're going to miss it. Absolutely agree. There's so many interesting things that come in with esports broadcasts. We're actually seeing some of it in the traditional sports world uh, with the lack of fans. We're seeing more audio streams, more players mic'd up. Uh, and just some, some unique, more broadcasts. I think some of the NFL playoff games were broadcast on like Nick uh, yep. last weekend. They just to do some really interesting, like bring people in broadcasts. So definitely seeing the traditional sports world start to innovate a little bit more with their broadcasts. And I think esports might have opened some eyes, just sort of, hey, this is what's possible here. You know, the NFL has set uh, the, the commissioner of the Call of Duty and Overwatch leagues, or what's her new head of leagues? Is that yep, Joanna's new? Leagues, uh, I think that's it. Yep. Yeah, that's her new thing after she added the Call of Duty League, or she added yeah. the Overwatch League. Um, anyways, uh, she came from the NFL as like a 10-year executive. So there's definitely a lot over there. We're seeing uh, more and more sports employees move over to esports. And that's also going back the other way. Those old connections like, hey, what are you doing with this? Hey, how did this work? Uh, so I find that really interesting. And I'm really excited to see how this plays out. I think Esports Edge is really at the forefront of making these broadcasts as cool as they can be. So Marshall, one last chance for you. What do you want people looking out for, following, watching for uh, in the weeks, months to come? Look, we've got so many big things uh, percolating that aren't ripe to disclose, but I think what you're going to see from our group is um, you're going to see news of us working with some of the biggest publishers on these massive initiatives. I think you can expect to see more innovation from our group you know, whether it's remote broadcast in COVID. Uh, and the other thing that I think will become striking is when we get out of this post-COVID world, when the world's vaccinated and everyone's feeling safe and secure, you're going to see a rush of, you know, offline or LAN events that are going to take place around the world. And if, if I'm right and I'm bullish about our team, whether it's the team in Burbank and Ohio, and as we brought everyone together, is that we're going to be at the forefront of delivering some of the best events and the best content that the esports community will be proud of and will be engaged by. And I think you're going to see some really amazing stuff from us very soon. So keep your uh, eye open. Absolutely. I think everybody in esports has their eye at esports edge at Vindex at large as they should. So definitely looking forward to see some of the cool work uh, that y'all are end up doing especially when we leave a post-COVID world. Man, I'm excited to, to do something in Vegas, literally anything that I 
the day I could do that safely, I will be so stoked. Marshall, thanks for joining the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, to our listeners, you'll be hearing this on Friday, the January 15th, and I'll be back uh, with another episode. Actually, you might be hearing this on Monday. I believe I've got a uh, Motorsport Games CEO coming on Friday just due to uh, an SEC-mandated quiet period. Is That's when I have to publish that one. And then you'll be hearing this one on Monday. So be on the lookout for a new episode of the Gamer Hour with Chris Puckett coming out a few days later.